Hi there. This podcast covers a variety of topics for you who are interested in current events and history and especially books. Um, I enjoy bringing attention to authors and books that you may not have heard of. Sometimes they're only popular regionally and they may need a, a little bump that I can provide through exposing them to a national listening audience and I'm happy to do that. I'm the host of the podcast, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com, a boutique social media management company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media presence. Not only do I offer services, but I also offer training to those who prefer to handle their accounts personally. Um, I appreciate all the tremendous feedback we've been getting. And please keep suggestions for future episodes coming. You can shoot me an email at Delilah at ImaginePublicity.com or through my website contact form at ImaginePublicity.com. Well, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You've heard it. That is, unless you write a book about it, my guest today is Ralph Delegati author of the book, The Last Casino, which is based on the true story of his life coming up in the casino business. It's a fascinating look behind the scenes, the celebrities, and of course, the mob. Welcome, Ralph. Let's let's begin by going back to the days when you grew up in New York. Um, what was your early initiation into gangs of that era? Uh, hello, Delilah. It's uh, it's good talking to you. I'm, I'm very pleased uh, to be joining you today. Um, actually, I was um, uh, an altar boy. I went to a Catholic grammar school, and I was very protected by my family. And I went fishing one day, and um, a group of boys came up to me and told me they were going to beat me up and throw me in the water if I didn't give them my money and all my fishing tackle. And when just about, and I was in shock. I mean, I'd never run into anything like that before. And just before I was about to get a beating, I heard a voice yell, hey, that's my cousin, leave him alone. And uh, it turned out to be a first cousin of mine uh, uh, who came and saved me. <laughs> he was part of the group. So anyway... Um, uh, he asked me to, if I wanted to go with them. They're about to go to a movie, and I was, you know, I was just bewildered by the whole uh, attitude and, and uh, style of these guys. They were a little bit older than me. They were very muscular, all weightlifters, and very strong and and tough. And, and uh, anyway, I, I was intrigued, but I was I was scared. So I went with them to the movie and. There was a couple of uh, things that happened in the movie. One of them is they were making a lot of noise, and they snuck in uh, through the top. Uh, uh, there was a, a fire escape, and two guys paid to get in, and then they went up into the balcony and opened the, the exit doors, and about 15 of the rest of us snuck in. And they all thought it was a joke, and I was petrified. But um, anyway, when the manager came up with a flashlight and shone it in their eyes and said to get up and get out, um, I started to head for the door, and the rest of them grabbed the manager and hung him off the edge of the balcony and said, from now on, we're coming here whenever we feel like we're going to help ourselves to the candy counter and leave us alone. You leave, or the next time, we'll throw you off the balcony. And he was saying, please don't drop me, please don't drop me. And that was the beginning of my adventures with the group. I was uh, kind of fascinated by that. I'd never seen anything like that uh, I was afraid at the beginning, very concerned about how crazy everything was, but it intrigued me. So I, I started hanging around with them, and I did for some time. Did, so did you pull any other shenanigans with this gang? Oh, God. There was, <laughs> yes, there was uh, endless, endless stuff. Uh, um, I, uh, we we used to sneak into this big swimming pool. Uh, it was uh, called the Aquacade in New York. They they had an aqua show there at night with uh, uh, some famous uh, people. Esther Williams would star there, Johnny Weissmuller, and things like that. Uh, and in the daytime, it was a public pool. People would just go to sw swim there, but we didn't have the money, so we'd manage to sneak into that, too. And they had... Um, uh, towers, big towers uh, that you could dive off of. There was 
10-foot boards, but there were some of the towers for the show that were 40 feet high. So uh, me, of course, I was uh, trying to get a telephone number from a girl, and I said, if I dive off that tower, will you will you uh, give me your phone number? And she said, she wouldn't give it to me. And I said, and she said, okay. So I went up. I had never uh, dived off that tower. I dived off some of the higher boards, but never off that. So I walked to the end of it. I looked down. I couldn't hardly see the pool. It looked like a little postage stamp. So I backed up. I ran, and I dove, and the wind from the bay caught me and turned me over onto my back, and they had me pull me out of the water. Um, but that's the kind of thing we did. We did a lot of crazy stuff like that. And then later on, as they got older, then things began to change. Uh, the neighborhood that we all grew up in was kind of, uh, there was a lot of mob affiliations, a lot of uh, mob business going on. And it was pretty much common that somehow or other everybody in the neighborhood got involved, uh, maybe not with the actual work, but. Uh, they they uh, they got into hijacking trucks and buying their own trucks and hijacking their own trucks so they got the insurance besides the, the plunder. And uh, they would take the stuff that they hijacked and give it to the neighborhood people to sell, and they would they'd all get a chance to make a buck or get a percentage, and uh, they got everybody involved. I think Goodfellas show talked about some of that, that movie, the film Goodfellas. It's pretty much what that that movie was pretty much what went on with some of the the, the guys that I grew up with. There wasn't a lot of murdering and all of that stuff, but a lot of other you know crazy stuff. So, did you feel a sense of protection by you know by knowing these people, or did they look out for you as as one of the guys in the neighborhood? Well, at first they just tolerated me because I was a weak, you know, I was like the 90-pound weakling, you know, and, um, but I, I got set of weights for my 14th birthday, and I worked really hard to catch up, and uh, in time, I got to where I was uh, considered an equal, uh, if not even beyond that, a very respected uh, member of the group, um, uh, but uh, it took me a little time to do that. At first, uh, I was just tolerated. It was because of my cousin that they uh, even let me hang around with. As far as I was concerned, they, the thing that intrigued me most was their independence. Uh, I had two older sisters and mother. My father uh, worked uh, away from home quite a bit. Uh, it was like Christmas whenever he was around. Uh, so my sisters and mother, they fed me, they clothed me, they did everything. I never had to make any decisions at all. Everything was made for me. I went to Catholic school, and, um, you know, I, I was living a certain kind of very protected life. And then all of a sudden when I met fellas, I found that they were totally independent, and they told adults what they do, and the adults jumped, and that just knocked me out. I couldn't get over the part about how respected and feared they were. That I had never seen anything like that. I was very respectful to my family and adults, and uh, that's why I thought that it was everywhere. And this, that's, that's the thing that really interests me the most, is the fact that they were able to act so much more grown up than I ever did. And I kind of like that. <laughs> so that's <laughs> that's why I stuck with it and and there's a lot of fun stuff we did we went to drag races on long island and drag cars when we got older and there's a lot of fun things we did uh, it wasn't so crazy there's a lot of fighting that's what most of the things that we did when we went to big dances at some of the big uh, stadiums and places where they held these big dances in new york we'd wear our lousiest clothes because we knew there was going to be a fight before the evening ended and uh, that's that's mostly during the middle teens and later teens is what what we were busy at. We were very active with our hands. Uh, that was the way it was in those days or everywhere. Wherever you went, there was a gang from that particular neighborhood that protected the neighborhood. That's what we did in our neighborhood. If, if the women were bothered or anybody came around that was causing trouble, we cleared it up. That was mainly when it's like a, it was like a... Uh, throwback to what went on in Italy. You know, the, the police weren't that active in some of the small towns in Italy, and they all formed their own protection groups to protect the women and the children and 
And that's what we did. When there was trouble, they called us, and we'd always go to solve the problem. Kind of sounds like West Side Story. I'm sure that was based on, on some of the stories that you're telling. Very much like that. There were gangs in every district of all different names. The gang that I belonged to was called the Corona Dukes. We got the name Dukes from a book that was written earlier called the Amboy Dukes. Um, but there was also the Comanches, uh, the Black Black uh, Panthers. There was uh, uh, quite a few other groups, all with gangs that represented their neighborhoods. Yeah, that's you know that's just fascinating. And, and so after, well, or maybe even during this particular time period, what was it that drew the Hollywood? Excuse me, I didn't get that. I'm sorry. I said, what was it in this time frame that drew you or inspired you to go to Hollywood? Oh, um, one of the fellows from the neighborhood, uh, one of the older fellows, uh, went out to Hollywood and became a pretty good star. He was pretty famous. He was doing a lot of TV stuff, and he made some films uh, with big stars and and his brother was part of our group, uh, the same age, his younger brother. And he kept telling him, come on out, you know, come on out, and I'll get you started. I'll get you a screen extra uh, card, and you can hang around, and we'll have some fun. And we were all talking. You know, he wanted us to go out and see him, and we are all talking about going there. And um, So I was intrigued by that. I was working and going to college, and I wasn't very happy with the whole situation. I I was working for Lord & Taylor. They had a store in Long Island, uh, but they wanted to train me for a buyer. Uh, So I had to commute into New York every day. And I was only 18 at the time, and I found it. I couldn't understand how people could spend three hours a day just going back and forth to work where they could be, if they had a job close to their home, they could spend that extra three hours with their family. So I just didn't like that at all. It really bothered me to have to spend all that time sitting on a train going and coming to go to work for eight hours and, and three hours of commuting. So that's one of the things that turned me off. And then some of the other things uh, – I just didn't like the environment anymore. I, I thought there had to be something better. Um, my sister, my, uh, one of my older sisters, moved to uh, California, and she was writing me letters to come out, please come and see her, come and visit. So um, I won some money at a racetrack. Uh, it's in the book. There's a story in the book. Uh, I can go into details if you want me to, but... Um, I bought a car and I went to California. I just said I've got to, I got to. There's got to be something better. I want to do some exploring and see if there's uh, somewhere else I prefer to live. Uh, you know, it seemed like at that time, particularly uh, people who grew up in the Northeast, thought there was no better place in the world, and they never left. They never even went on vacations anywhere else. You know, this was in the 50s. I'm talking about, um, and I wanted to break loose. I wanted to see if there was something different. And of course. When I got to California, it was uh, quite a different experience for me. I was I was just in awe of everything. You know, in in New York, you don't see many celebrities. Not when you're just working stiff, uh, like we were. And in California, it was full of them. Especially when uh, this this friend got us uh, SEG cards, green extra cards, uh, to work in the studios. So I went. We both. My, one of my friends and I went to work at Republic Studios, and that was just fascinating for me. I would have worked there for nothing. I would have paid them if I had the money to let me work there, just to look at all these. I was tripping over movie stars every time I turned around, and that was just mind-boggling to me. Hello? Hello? I'm sorry, I'm Hello? here. <laughs> I, okay. I'm, are you there? I'm here. Okay, I'm so here. did you did you get some parts? Were you were you active as an actor, or oh, were I you just, more under study? You know, studying to be um, actually, to be an I was, actor. 
Actually, I was just uh, one of the crew that uh, set up and took down sets and did that kind of work. I had a Screen Extras Guild, so that every now and then I would get an extra part to work uh, in one of the, uh, it was all TV stuff, uh, like the wagon train. And uh, uh, there was M Squad, which uh, Lee Marvin, who uh, my friend Pete and I got to be pretty close to while we were there. We went out together a few and had a lot of fun together, um, and Restless Gun, there was a, and even Leave it to Beaver, where they were all filmed at Republic Studios at that time. I don't know if any of you, if you remember Leave it to Beaver, but um, it was a very popular family thing in those days. Uh, so uh, I just wor- I did that kind of work, and I, I had an opportunity uh, at the end to go to work at, uh, I mean, to go to school at Desilu Productions. Desilu had all of the big TV shows at the time. It was one of the most uh, popular uh, companies that produced uh, TV series. And if you got a chance to work for them, it was a big opportunity to go someplace as an actor. But I really wasn't interested in being an actor. I was interested in the, what it took to put a movie together, the production part of it. Um, I, was, uh, I loved the idea of uh, all of the communication and cooperation it took to get sets and and, uh, costumes and scripts and uh, all the things it took to make an hour TV show or an hour and a half movie. It was mind-boggling to me to see how that all came together. Uh, And that's what I wanted to get into. I really uh, wanted to make that my life's work. I was fascinated by that. And that was my plan. But I had uh, like a six-week layover before the next Desilu school uh, started, and I thought I'd drive home and stop in Las Vegas because I heard so much about it and I'd never been there before. And uh, so I stopped in Vegas for a weekend, and as I was driving down the Strip, uh, just my first drive down the Strip on my way in for the first time, I saw a sign that said, uh, direct from Paris, uh, all new uh, French review. So I pulled my car into that. I wanted to see what that was about. And uh, as I was walking in, there was these two beautiful, heavily made-up girls uh, walking out, and I could hear them speaking French as they approached me. And I didn't know any French except bonjour, and that's what I said. And when they heard me say, speak French, they attacked me. They thought that I I was the only man in Las Vegas that could speak French and communicate with them. So they were all excited about that. And by the time they realized that I couldn't speak French, it didn't really make any difference. We Somehow we managed to communicate. And uh, I went out with them that night after they finished their second show, and we got to be very close, and I moved in with them. And I never went back to California. I never got to New York. That was it. Well, that's kind of like every guy's dream come true. <laughs> Wait, Why would you want to go back? <laughs> well, did you were I I mean, the girls were actually from France here on a working visa, I assume, and then so I mean, yeah. did you feel like this was going to be a long-term relationship with them or or did you well, know that it probably would come to an end? You know, I never gave that the visa part of it, a thought. Um, we never communicated about that. It was hard for us to communicate about anything, but we managed. But the thing about it is I really, I was just, I hadn't even turned 21 yet. They were uh, almost 19 and almost 20. Uh, so we were just kids. But there was something about them. They were adorable to me, and I really cared a great deal. I fell in love with both of them. You know, they were there was so much fun, and they were sweet, and they weren't allowed. None of us were allowed in the casino, uh, because they're too young. You had to be 21, even though they were walking around almost totally nude on the stage. They weren't allowed to go in the casino. <laughs> but um, I just really cared a great deal for them. And then all of a sudden, the visa thing came up, and and before I knew it. They couldn't get renewed because of their age. They had to go back. I don't know what that had to do with it, but it did. And all all of a sudden they were gone, and I was stuck in Vegas. I had lost whatever money I had. I sold my car just to uh, have some fun and have money to 
to burn. And all of a sudden, I'm stuck and broke and starving to death, and I had to get a job. And uh, uh, some fellows were talking about the Mint downtown Las Vegas hires people to break in and uh, work in the slot machines area. And I went down. I got a job there for a dollar an hour paying off uh, uh, slot machines. In those days, uh, the the jackpots were paid off by hand because – they uh, they didn't they didn't drop them and there wasn't this all this uh, electronic stuff that they have today it was all mechanical so that's how it happened I started off with that job uh, and uh, I went three days believe it or not uh, I didn't have any money or food I went three days on ice water and I, and when I first got the job I went to to try to get a salary advance and they said you have to work three shifts before you get a salary advance and there was no bending of that rule so I went through the three days and you know when I got halfway through my third shift I could I was you know I was getting kind of sick weak and I went to the boss and asked him for an advance and he was bothered by me and he kept telling me sloughing me off and I finally I went back to him when the shift was over, and I grabbed him by the arm and said, "We're going to go get the money." I, you know, I was starving to death, and uh, he pulled his arm away and started to hit me, and so I knocked him down and picked him up and knocked him down again. And before I knew it, I was in handcuffs and about to go to jail. And they took me up to the office, and one of the owners was there, and we, they explained what happened. And they said, "No, take the cuffs off, let him go. We can't." We can't do that. Just, you know, you said, you're through here. Go down and get your money and don't come back in here. And I said, okay, just let me get my money so I can get something to eat. And uh, that's how it started. I went to money, and on my way out of the mint, one of the uh, slot managers came running after me, calling my name. I thought he was uh, going to have to work him over, too. <laughs> I was running out of strength, and he said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, uh, what are you going to do? Where are you going? And I said, what do you care? You don't even know me. He said, well, but you did. It took you three days to do something I've been wanting to do for six years. He said, uh, let me help you. So I said, well, I need a job. I want to go back to California, but I don't have any money, and I need a, I need work. So he took me across to the Nevada Club, introduced me to one of the owners there. His name was Norman Little. I'll never forget him. One of the nicest people I've ever met. And he got me a job working as a shill and breaking in as a dealer for a dollar an hour, eight dollars a day. And you had to work eight hours as a shill, and then they would work another six to eight hours uh, teaching you how to deal, but you didn't get paid for that eight hours. So you worked almost 16 hours a day for eight dollars, which is what fifty cents an hour. But that's uh, that's how I got started working uh, in Vegas. How did you how did you move up within the industry? I'm, I don't know. How did that work back then? Did you uh, well, I'll go tell from you position that, to position? That's a really good question. Uh, the in those days, the, the mob was very much involved. Everybody knows that, and and uh, all they but and the other thing was that Vegas was just about to start to explode in growth. Um, it was it was getting about the time where uh, Vegas was was really famous and and they were all looking to get bigger and expand and add hotels. There weren't that many hotels in Vegas at that time. Uh, they had they had like cottages and things like that were all single level or maybe to a double level like a motel thing, but there weren't any high rises uh, at, at the beginning when I first went there. Um, so it was a time where there's a lot of expansion about to happen and an already beginning. And, uh, I minded my own business. The, the people who were owned and ran the places were very particular about how you behaved. not so much at work. You had to behave yourself at work, but what you did when you get off, if you hung around and got drunk and caused trouble in that casino or another casino, and they got word of it. Somebody called and complained or something. They didn't. They didn't like that very much. But I worked. I, I was very concerned about being as good as I could be at my job as a dealer. I wanted to be the best, and I really was working hard at that. I took great pride in it because I never thought I could ever learn how to do it, and I was learning how to do it, and I was very happy about that. But 
Um, so I guess they like the fact that I just got off and they never saw me until I came back to work the next day. And, and I treated everybody with respect and minded my own business. And so whenever there was an opportunity, um, I got promoted. Um, and that's, that's how it worked. I worked hard. I mean, I earned it, but I also, uh, stayed out of their way when I wasn't working and they liked that, I guess. And so that's how I moved up. But I was fortunate, you know, being in the right place at the right time. Uh, that happened for me, too. Well, was this the time frame when you were able to rub elbows with a lot of celebrities? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about who and who and what you know about them <laughs> and what your experiences were, because I think, you know, you, you were with the big people like Elvis. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than Elvis. Well, you know, it's the funny thing. Most people, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, what I'm going to tell you, but it's the truth. In those days, particularly Every famous person, uh, celebrity, uh, whether it's a sports celebrity or movie celebrity or astronaut or everybody, they all wanted to know or have one pit boss's name and phone number in their book. And and the Hollywood people felt treated us like we were uh, their equals. Uh, uh, they felt like we were entertainers or in the entertainment industry, and we. The, you know, they would come and uh, you'd meet them and they'd come to house for dinner. And, you know, it, it was just regular. It wasn't like it was celebrity and working stuff. It was celebrity, celebrity. To them, we were as much a celebrity because we were a pit boss as they were because they were a movie star or a, a great baseball player or an astronaut, believe it or not. That's how it was. And so it was easy to befriend them when they were around. They were anxious to... Uh, get to know us, um, and so that's why uh, I, I befriended a lot of uh, famous people. Elvis, um, I went to work at the Sahara in 1960. It was my first job on the Strip after I got good enough to deal there and get and pass a test that they gave me. Um, and uh, but I was a dealer, and uh, when you got a break, you'd work an hour on the table, and then you get a 20-minute break, and then you'd work another hour. So the 20 minutes. They had a room downstairs uh, called the dealer's room, and they had a waitress there and food and beverage, and they fed us and everything. It was all free, but that's where we had to stay. We couldn't stay and associate or hang around in the casinos. Uh, but Elvis, being the kind of guy he was, he would rather come down there and play cards with us or hang around and talk with us than hang around with all the big shots upstairs in the casino. That's that's who he was. He was a common man. He, that's what he preferred. He preferred the simpler style. Um, I, he, his, his manager, Colonel Parker, was a very good friend of Milton Prell, who was the owner, uh, at least the representative owner, of the Sahara. And so uh, Colonel Parker always stayed there in between movies or whenever they were around that area of the country. And Elvis was always with Colonel Parker. So from 60 to 65, well, uh, I got to know Elvis very, very well. We became pretty close friends. And whenever he would come to town, he would check in and then come looking for me, and we'd catch up with how things were going with both of us and talk. And we we got to be pretty close friends. And uh, I noticed from the beginning that he uh, – he could be taken advantage of very easily by people he cared about, uh, and that happens a lot. I saw a lot of it, but it wasn't up to me. I didn't feel any way to say anything about it, but I was very aware of it, and, and Elvis was the one who taught me how to deal with uh, important celebrities. Don't ask so much of them, um, them from that kind of thing, publicity and people that are out to get something from them. And they'd be your friend forever. <laughs> and uh, so that's how I, I didn't ask him for anything. I I, uh, I just enjoyed his company, and we had a lot of fun together. We respected each other. Uh, so when I left uh, the Sahara, Milton Prell sold it, and he bought the Aladdin, and he asked me and some other of the, of the, uh, the people who worked in the casino to go help him run the place. I went with him. 
and of course Colonel Parker and Elvis followed. So for another five years at the Aladdin, Elvis and the Colonel uh, were there, and whenever they finished a movie, they came there, and uh, I continued my friendship with Elvis. So it was almost ten years that we became very close friends. Uh, one day. A lot of people won't believe this, but we were just sitting uh, in a coffee shop uh, talking, and we got kind of into deep conversation. And a lot of times he would ask me, uh, I got off at 2 in the morning, and he'd be coming in from seeing a second show, and he'd say, come on over to the suite. We're going to have a little party, and you know, I'm going to... Uh, so I went a couple of times, and he would sit at the piano and play from 3 o'clock in the morning until sunrise and just sing... Uh, love songs and religious things, uh, never any rock and roll or anything like that, only very deep sentimental stuff. Uh, and he would entertain the group that was there, and he'd do it two or three times a week. But I couldn't do it because I had children, and I was coaching football and baseball, and I would tell him, i got to go, i got to coach tomorrow, I can't, you know, maybe next time. And, and uh, so anyway, we were talking this one particular night, and he in the middle of conversation, he grabbed my hands, or I had them resting on the table, and he looked at me, and he said, you know what? He said, if I could, I'd trade places with you right now. And it stunned me. I, you know, I, was, I, didn't, I didn't know what to say, but I could see he really meant it. Um, and then I changed the conversation because I, I didn't know what to say or how to respond to that. But I'll never forget that, the way he looked at me and said that. He, um, he loved his work. But he got too much of it, and he couldn't say no to Colonel Parker about let me be with my wife and new baby, uh, you know, stop this one movie after another and after another, and I don't have time to do this, and I can't do that. Some of the things that I'd like to do, he couldn't say that to Colonel Parker. He, he had that weakness about people he respected. That You know, if somebody saw a piece of jewelry on him and said, that's a beautiful ring, that person could not get away without putting a ring on and wearing it and having it for himself. Well, this one time, he uh, he had a lot of Cadillacs. I think he had six at, or seven at this time, and he was looking at the Fleetwoods. They didn't have limousines like they do now, but the Fleetwood, I think, was the biggest model, and he was looking at another one, and he was sitting behind the wheel, and there was, uh, there was a black lady who was cleaning up, uh, mopping up, I guess, and she said, Mr. Elvis, you sure look good in that car. It looks real good for you. And she drove it home. He bought it for her and gave it to her. Um, that's true. That's the kind of person he was. If you admired something of his, you had to have it. So I was aware of that, so I didn't admire anything. <laughs> I didn't want to be one. I didn't want to be well, one of the guys that took advantage of that. Yeah, I I'm well, I think everyone's heard stories of his generosity and, and giving away Cadillacs. And I think, yeah. you know, that, that must have been a very fascinating time for you. And, and you know, some of the other people um, that are mentioned in the book, you took martial arts with Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris. Um, there's a story of about the possibility of one of your clients being Howard Hughes and, and all kinds of people. So, I mean, you really, really stepped into something that most people can really not imagine. But then when you moved into a mob-controlled casino, what was the difference there? Explain, explain your connection um, and how you were, I think, used by some of the mobsters. Well, yeah, that's, that's what the book is about. Um, uh, I didn't realize that I I was very proud of myself. I'm getting another promotion, but I was being thrown into the lion's den, and I didn't realize that. You know, it was a promotion. There was a huge promotion, but I had no idea about what they were putting me into. Uh, but but the, the beginning of your question, what was different about them? Uh, they, uh, well, I the best, the simplest way to, for me to put it is, Las Vegas is what it is because of them. I you know I I don't admire you know who they are or where they came from and how they made their living but they know they knew how to open and run a casino and and it was them that made las vegas what it became once to me now this is only my opinion once the corporations came 
and took control, the it, the whole thing changed. They became, to me, factories. They weren't casinos anymore. There was in and out. You know, it's just like uh, the whole the whole atmosphere changed. Uh, when I worked on the strip uh, for the first 15, 20 years, uh, after 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you couldn't walk in a casino if you had sneakers on or if you had a T-shirt. You had to have collared shirts. Um, T-shirts or sneakers were forbidden. You couldn't get into any of the restaurants except the coffee shop unless you had a, a suit coat and a tie on. Uh, the women wore the best jewelry and gowns to go to the shows. Uh, men wore tuxedos. It was a whole different atmosphere. It was very classy, very safe. The, the guys that ran the places, um, the reputation was uh, come and have a good time, but if you steal anything, uh, you know, you're going to be in some deep trouble or if you'd cause any kind of serious problems. And the word was around, and people who came there knew that. And my saying was you could walk around with $100 bills sticking out of your ears, and nobody would dare uh, do anything about that. Uh, and it was true. Uh, so that's the reason I called the book The Last Casino, because it's not a very imaginative title. I had other titles in mind, but I kept going back to that because, to me, it, the, the last mob run casino was the last true casino, the way they ran them and what, uh, and what actually made Vegas famous, the way they ran them. Uh, corporations are different. Everything was... Another example, uh, uh, everything in the hotel was what they they called a lost leader. Uh, The the restaurants, the shows, the rooms. We used to go see the Rat Pack. It was $25 to see the Late Show, $30 for the dinner show, and you got prime rib. Uh, The Rat Pack, you know what it would cost today to see the Rat Pack? Thousands. (laughs) I mean, they, they, they charge $300 for people I've never heard of. Um, uh, the rooms are $250, $300 a night. In those days, they were $20. Uh, they, they lost money. I mean, they cost money to make up, but they didn't care that they lost money. That's how they – what happened was what made Las Vegas is not the high rollers, but the volume that it attracted. Uh, because it was so uh, reasonable, to, like the buffets were $2 for the same kind of buffet you get today, it was two dollars or a dollar and a half. They used to have champagne brunches. It was two dollars and fifty nine cents. All the champagne you could drink. Um, but and they lost. That was lost. They lost on the rooms. They lost on the shows. Uh, but they drew hordes of people came here because to take part in that. And of course, they all stopped in the casinos. And the casinos were always very very busy, with a lot of volume. And that's what made Vegas, the volume that they produced with these lost leaders. The place was always full, people coming in for you could You could have three buffets a day for five bucks, six bucks, and, uh, and eat like a king, you know. Um, so there's a lot of, now the working people can't afford to come. Uh, it's only high rollers, and people can write it off on their business accounts. And I object to that. I don't like that. I... I like the working guys uh, should have had a chance to come and take part in all this excitement. And the way they, they did it in the old days, they all had a chance, and that's what made it. It was volume in those days, and now it's, uh, it's well, I guess I, I won't use the word quality, but it's uh, it's all big, big money now, not the working people. Well, you know, it's it's kind of that way across the board now. I mean, how how can the regular working person afford to go to a professional sporting event? You you just it's it's astronomical to to even go to a professional football game or a baseball game. So I correlate yeah, right. Vegas you're to right. that that you know it's kind of it's kind of catered to the elite and you know the working person doesn't have that advantage to be able to um, enjoy those things any longer well the thing about the corporations is everything has to be in the black everything has to pay off Uh, you see the uh, in the old days it wasn't like that they didn't mind losing money 
uh, because that was the the, the attraction the, the, the be able to go to Las Vegas and see the Rat Pack for twenty five bucks and and get a room for fifteen or twenty dollars and have some fun gambling you know whatever it is you lost didn't make any difference you you were entertained you had such a great time but now it's everything has to be uh, make money everything so that's why they charge some of the prices they charge. I mean, it used to be able to go to fights for fifty dollars. Now it costs two, three thousand dollars to have a ringside seat, and that's cheap. Um, you know, I have tickets from Absolutely. the seventies. Uh, you know, from nineteen ninety, uh, the tickets were fifteen hundred for ringside. Now they're triple that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I would just before we get it running out of time, I want to make sure that um, we talk about your experiences as a pit manager and. Um, how I was just really I, I had no idea what what goes on behind the scenes, how the pits are, are managed and, and how the money changes hands. So maybe you can describe that. And um, did the, the people that were employed with you or maybe your bosses, were they were they mob involved? And how did how did they control the money? Well, the the way it was in those days, the reason the casinos were built uh, by mob people was to skim cash. They wanted to get, it was a great source of tax-free cash. And that's why they built them. That's their main reason for putting them in there. But what happened is they became so popular they far beyond what any of them expected them to, to become uh the money and so they started uh building hotels and expanding and expanding but the main reason was every day after they they would sit in a in a room just the, the bosses who represented whichever mob was on that particular casino they would sit and count the money and they would take uh, well, the, the bosses had what they were, they were what they called PC PC. Uh, they each had a small percentage. One would have two percent. One would have three percent. One would have five percent. And so, when they were counting the money so much and set it aside, and they would, each would take his percentage from that, and the rest would go in a at a shake case or or, or larger, whatever, and go to St. Louis, Chicago, or wherever it had to go to. Uh, they didn't do it every day, but they would, you know, they would take, they would accumulate it, and once a week maybe it was somebody would fly in a plane and take it to where it had to be delivered. Um, they, it's called it skimming. Uh, that's the reason the casinos were built in the first place, just to be able to uh, generate that kind of tax-free cash so they could use it for whatever they were doing, whatever they wanted to. A lot of it um, they used to get into legitimate businesses, but a lot of it uh, funded illegitimate business as well. But that's what Vegas was for initially, to skim cash. And that's the, what the book is about is I walked into something like that um, but you know, in the in the in Vegas days, in those days, uh, you had to be very careful about honesty. That was a big thing, you know. If you were, if there was any question about your honesty, uh, you were in a lot of trouble. Um, so you had to, you had to be very careful and protect yourself uh, when you were watching games, when you were responsible for games. You had to make sure there wasn't any steal or anything going on because if that got caught by the by the state gaming people or by your bosses, they would say you had to be in in with it because you didn't stop it. Uh, so you you there was always that on your shoulder, you know, make sure everything is clean and straight, so nothing can you can't be accused of anything. Uh, so what happened is when I first went to work in this promotion, the first thing I saw was some money being skimmed and it scared me to death i said oh my god i you know if if the casino commission sees this uh with me sitting here looking right at it i'm going to be involved they're going to blame me too so i went to the man who put me in there as soon as the shift ended i said get me out of here i don't want to work there anymore and 
and he kept asking me why, and I didn't want to tell him what I saw, but then finally I did. And he said, well, you go back there. Don't worry. I'll make sure that that'll never happen again. So you don't have to worry about your reputation. That's not going to happen again. I said, well, I really don't want to get in anybody's way. I just don't go back to where I was before. He said, no, you do what I'm telling you. Go back there. Don't worry about it. So I went back. But the fact that I was in the way now for some of the business that they wanted to to do during my shift couldn't be done anymore. That created some resentment, and they tried to force me out, and that's what the book's about, uh, what went on. And the problem with me was <laughs> I was kind of dumb, I guess, uh, going up against it, but the money, what I saw, the tips that they, that I was in on, uh, you know, I was uh, an executive making executive salary, which was pretty good, but this was the only place in Las Vegas where executives were in on the tips, you know, with the dealers. And the tips in the Baccarat pit were huge. And when I got the first envelope uh, for the week, I don't know, I think it had 1400 and 1600 uh, in cash. And this was in the 1970s. That was a lot of money for one week in tips. Uh, so when they tried to force me out, I said, you know, I've got kids and a home, and I'm not going to let them take this away from me. I didn't, I figured that, if it was the bosses and they didn't want me in there, they would just come and say, uh, either you're fired or go back to the other 21 pit or where you came from. Uh, so it had to be these, these other flunkies that were trying to force me out, and I said, I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to let them take this away from me and my family. You know, this is a great opportunity for me. The job in the Baccarat pit as an executive with the tips that came with it uh, all the top people in town were after those jobs. There was Caesars and, and one of the other, a couple of the other hotels had the best Baccarat pits, and everybody wanted to work at those. Even some of the casino managers would rather have that job. So that's how it uh, developed. That was still going on, that skimming. What had happened is they used to skim in the cage, the casino cage, every 24 hours. And like I said, they would do the count, but the IRS came in and stopped that. None of the owners were allowed to count anymore. They had to they had to pick people from the working force to do the count, and it was very carefully supervised. So the skimming was stopped, and uh, that's not what the casino was there for. The casino was there to produce cash. So in those days, uh, the Baccarat was the only place that dealt cash. They didn't deal chips like in the other table games. They dealt all cash, so that's what they went. They went after that cash to continue the skimming, and I happened to just run into it. Uh, that's uh, so it kind of put you into a, a dangerous situation, and oh, it did. You know, yeah, I'm. I'll take this this minute, just a minute, to say that you know you weren't connected with the mob. You were kind of the the clean guy in all of this, and yeah, but um, I didn't know it. <laughs> Right, right. Well, you were kind of doing the right thing, and yet you encountered True. some very really dangerous situations. I was so proud. I got a promotion over everybody that he must have had on that list, and I, I, I was dumb enough to think it's because he liked the, how how good I was at my work. But I think that had a little bit to do with it. But I think mostly he wanted me to do what he needed to have done, but didn't want the the people there to resent him for getting for doing it so he used me to do his his dirty work and uh, uh that's that's where all the resentment came from and that's where all the what created all the problems i think it's an interesting story god knows i had no idea what i was walking into and i was i was walking around with my mouth hanging open the first day when i saw thirty thousand dollars get lifted right out of the table without any anything to put it back in you know usually when any money comes out of a table game um there's some sort of paperwork or marker buttons that go on the table until um you know if they took 30,000 in chips 30,000 in cash would come back or a credit slip would come back for 30,000 but this 30,000 disappeared and ended up laying in the poker pit and uh nothing ever came back and that's why I ran to get out of there but he told me to stay, and I stayed. And then when they tried to get rid of me, I decided I'm not going to give in. Uh, this is too good a thing for my family, and 
And I dug my heels in. I was crazy, I guess, but I was young and dumb. So after after your stint in Vegas, um, the book kind of ends there, but I, I really encourage listeners to get a copy of this and read the details of this story because it's, the devil is in the details of this one. It definitely is. So tell me, Ralph, after Vegas, where did you go? What did you do? And what are you doing today? Well, I, I when I was... Uh, at the end of this particular story, it was around 1979, and the two Perlman brothers who had just owned Caesar's Palace, they uh, approached me to go to Atlantic City and open Caesar's uh, in Atlantic City with them. As they wanted me to be part of the digital management group of uh, five fellas uh, to go and put the whole thing together and get it open. And they made me a terrific offer, and... Um, I found it uh, a kind of an exciting idea because they said, you're only going to have to work in Atlantic City for two years because I wasn't interested in going back to the Northeast. Uh, I loved the, the, my relatives and everything, and I went to see them, but I didn't want to settle there. Um, but they said, uh, we own most of the beachfront property in Florida and a bunch of the hotels, and as soon as they vote in gambling in Florida, which will be two years from now, um, you come down there and we'll give you a percentage to run the properties for us. You'll all be owners, part owners. So, of course, I said, let's go. You know, I want to be a part owner. I know what that meant. That meant some serious money. And so I went to Atlantic City uh, to get Caesars open. And two years from then, the, the vote came up in Florida. Everybody thought it was going to be a cinch. And it lost almost three to one against. So we looked at each other, and we were stuck in Atlantic City. So anyway, I, I opened Caesars, and then uh, I was asked uh, by the people who uh, owned Playboy. They were opening a, play, a hotel casino, and they asked me if I would come there as vice president to get them open, uh, which I did. I got them open, and then uh, they lost their license because they had a casino in Paradise Island and Nassau, and they bribed some executive there. And Atlantic City Gaming Commission found out about it and pulled a license. So uh, the new people who took over, I didn't like the way they operated, and I resigned. And I, I worked for Monte Carlo, uh, the, the big casino in Monte Carlo, for about 18 months, just taking a big a group of big players there every six weeks. That was fun. I would take um, this group of uh, big players, We'd stay three days either in Rome, Paris, London, or Madrid, and then six days in Monte Carlo, all expenses paid, first-class airfare, and I got a commission of the losses on top of it. And I did that every six weeks. I did that for about a year and a half, and and then uh, Resorts International asked me if I would go to work there. I worked there for about a year, and they uh, promoted me to uh, director of casino marketing for Paradise Island in Nassau. They own that property as well, and they said, "You live in Miami. You won't. You don't have to live on the island. You live in Miami, and you commute there. You'd be based in Miami." And I said, "Oh, I'm finally getting to Florida." Six years later, and so I took that job, and and I, you know, that's uh, I worked in Florida for a while. Then I opened my own business, representing casinos all over the world, and just taking big players all the different casinos. Uh, my two sons helped me with that. Did that for about 12 years, and then they called me to come back to Las Vegas and open Mandalay Bay and help them get open. I did that, and I retired not long after that. Uh, around 2003, I retired. Um, right now, I'm trying to write an expansion on the book because there's a chance that um, some producer might uh, get either Netflix or HBO to do something with it. But they want me well, to expand on, huh? I was going to say that would be an exciting show, absolutely, because I think you have a, a totally different take on things as far as you know what really goes on within the casinos back then and now, and uh, you know we've seen all of the you know the the mob controlled movies that you know like Casino for one. 
So we know how all that happened, but I think your broad range of experience is something that would be quite interesting to a lot of viewers as well as as listening to this. Um, So where can people get a copy of your book? Well, uh, right now you can order it from any bookstore, or you can go to Amazon and get it. uh, You can buy the book the hard copy from Amazon, or you can go to Kindle and download it. Now, if you're not a member of Kindle and you're a new sign-up, you can download it free. Um, And they they even sometimes allow uh, people uh, that are also members, that depends on when they're having specials, uh, to download them free. Uh, So um, if you have a tablet or something like that, you can download it free most of the time from Kindle. They still pay me. They have some sort of a fund that they draw from uh, to do this and uh, just give the books out free, which is nice for people who have tablets and things like that. So Kindle is good uh, to download it, or you can purchase the book uh, from Amazon or any bookstore. Well, and and I, I want listeners to realize that you are available to do presentations and book signings, and you were able to participate with the um, the Mob Museum in Las Vegas for a signing. I think you know that's kind of exciting. If people don't know about the Mob Museum, you've got to look it up because it's. Um, I haven't been there, but I know a lot of people who actually were involved in in the beginning before it was even opened, and it's quite the place for mob history for people who are are interested in that. Well, I tell you, it is. Uh, The first time I went down there, um, I couldn't believe they had the wall from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which I don't know, maybe most people know what that is, but... Uh, years ago, during Prohibition, Al Capone had a bunch of people killed in this garage, uh, and they were killed. They were lined up and shot down with machine guns. And the wall that they were lined up against uh, is in the Mob Museum with all the bullet holes and the blood and everything else. And I couldn't believe they were able to get that and put that in there, and that's one of the big attractions. Everybody wants to get a picture taken mm-hmm. standing in front of the wall. But they did. Yes, uh, did I've get seen those pictures. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, a couple of months ago, I did a book signing with uh, the mob affiliated with the Mob Museum and some uh, big cl- clubs that are all about uh, mob uh, history. Uh, they asked me if I would come into a book signing, a speaking engagement, which I did. And it was a lot of fun. I met a lot of uh, um, uh, politicians and FBI people that were involved years ago, and one of them was named uh, uh, Piero, I think his name was. Uh, He was on the cover guy for the FBI for years and worked in the mob, and he was a terrific guy to talk to. So I had a good time, my wife and I both, uh, meeting all those people and doing the book signing there. That was fun. Great. Well, again, I hope if you're listening to this podcast, you go to Amazon and get a copy uh, the Last Casino. Uh, the stories are, are very fascinating, and, and as I said before, it gives you a different perspective um, than than what you've seen or read before. And now that we've we've come to the end, this hour goes so quickly. As as you see, Ralph, um, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here with me today, and I hope maybe you will consider coming back because I think there's a lot more to your story. Um, So until next time, everyone out there, stay safe and please, please be kind to each other. 